And it's live. And it's live. You remember we used to say that every episode? We did oh. indeed. Hello and welcome to the Morality of Everyday Things, a podcast where we talk about everyday moral dilemmas and some decidedly not everyday examples that apply to those dilemmas. Yeah. Uh, and we discuss them from a philosophical perspective. Exactly. I'm Jacob, by the way. I'm Anthony. And like we always say, we're not here to tell you what to think, but we are here to provide you with frameworks and ideas so that you can think through these things yourselves and, you know, share them with your mates and any impressionable underlings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, today's topic is one that I'm sure everyone can relate to. It's around the topic of promises, specifically the morality of breaking unreasonable promises. So I think there's a couple interesting concepts there promises generally and also when does a promise become unreasonable yeah and loads of interesting philosophers have had opinions on this as usual what we'll do we'll start with definitions we'll introduce a lot of perspectives from classic philosophers some guys you've heard before some new perspectives that we've never talked about on the show which would be interesting and we'll cover each one in turn before we kind of wrap up with a sense of where where we sit and yeah yeah that's right we're going to help you form your own opinion before we uh <laughs> before we tell you what the correct answer is <laughs> uh, but First, this is a first for us, actually. Before we get into today's discussion, we actually have a message from a sponsor. What? I know. If you've ever listened to us talking and thought about starting your own podcast, there's no better time than now. I can tell you that we really enjoy doing it. Zencaster is an all-in-one podcasting studio that you can access straight from your browser. No installations needed. Uh, just get on the site and send a link to your guests, and you can get started recording studio-quality audio and also video. So you don't need to do a terrible recording of a Zoom call. Instead, you can have it all in one place all the mm. files neat. Yep, and their automatic post-production makes finalizing your podcast really easy. All guests will have their own audio channels to make editing a breeze, and all files are stored on the cloud for easy access and peace of mind. So if you've thought about making your own podcast without all the fuss, we definitely fumbled through a bunch of fuss before we started using uh, these sorts of solutions, uh, Zencaster. Check out Zencaster.com and be sure to enter the code The Morality of Everyday Things, no spaces, or access the link in the notes and you'll get a 30% discount on your subscription. Yeah, it's quite a spelling testing little code to use. Yes, it. well, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a bunch of words. It's a long code. But it's I a mean, long code. None of them should individually be hard. It's Remember, it's all together, the morality of everyday things. And also, remember the magic of copy and paste. Yes. <laughs> so, guys, uh, let's crack on with the show. And our first question, opening questions and definitions. What is a promise, Anthony? Mm, that's a good question. Most people would define a promise as a, a statement to another person that you will do a thing. Sometimes it's an exchange for something similar from the other person. Uh, a quid pro quo, if you will. Oh, uh, the Latin from you. Love that. Yes. Uh, important. I actually do not speak Latin. Uh, oh, I had a funny Latin fact. It's gone now. Et tu, Brute. Et tu, Brute. That is one of my favorite quotes. Anyway, importantly, it's usually something more than, you know, I'll see what I can do. It, it takes typically the form of something more formal and specific. A, a specific assurance that a specific task or what have you, will be done rather than just an implication or a suggestion. But there are generally things that are accepted as promises, even though no one explicitly says, I promise, right? So an example we were talking about when we were preparing the show was what about when couples decide to go exclusive? Yeah. I mean, to be fair, we say go exclusive. Like you could even just say like, if I was seeing someone, this is the, the common parlance amongst millennials. I don't know if Gen Zs do this, but there's a, there's a <laughs> distinction between seeing someone and having a boyfriend girlfriend right, right yeah. and when you kind of when you're seeing someone and you say do you want to be my partner even if you don't you know, explicitly howdy partner, <laughs> <laughs> <Audi> partner. <laughs> even if you don't explicitly say like should we go exclusive yeah. I, I guess if, if you were in like if you were in greece the movie it might be like gee girl should we go steady <laughs> uh, there's kind of you know even if you don't explicitly say don't sleep with other people or stop dating other people that's kind of what it means, right? Yeah, exactly. There's a, and there's always that sort of ambiguous period before that conversation happens. And in some cases, I guess the conversation never happens. I wouldn't know. I'm, I've never had a girlfriend. <laughs> that's, not, that's not true. Don't worry. What is love? <laughs> <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me. But I guess the example, the, one, the reason this is interesting is, as you say, there's, uh, it's not necessarily going to be the case that you sit down and you say, I promise solemnly not to sleep with anyone else. But by implication, it's it's an agreement that arises. And sometimes it maybe it is explicit. It, it, it probably depends couple to couple. The point we're making when we've given the couple example is it is about what wording counts as a promise. Like how, how semantic do we need to be here? Is it actually more the case that it's expectations that, it, that are important? Yeah. You know, in, in the same way that if you sort of deceived someone deliberately by 
saying words that were true, but you know, uh, actually led to sort of false impressions. Yeah. So maybe like a maybe you said a half truth or you said a truth that omits some pretty right. vital facts. Exactly, exactly. You'd generally consider that to be deceitful. But uh, the sort of reverse is: could you define a promise as any combination of words designed to assure someone you'll do something, even if it doesn't include the explicit word? I promise yeah. to do this. I I do think colloquially again everyday podcast everyday philosophy i think the source of a lot of fights over promises tends to be really when you get down to the premise of was it a reasonable expectation that that mm. was actually a promise being formed mm-hmm. uh I, I like I, I often don't think I, I think often two people will actually have a fairly aligned view of like the morality of a promise the question will be was that a promise yeah like um, was it just a sort of i'll do my best or was yeah, it yeah. like i will make this happen yes exactly exactly anyway Back onto definitions, breaking a promise is when you make a promise to do something, but for whatever reason, clearly you don't do it. Mm. Um, or I guess when you make a promise not to do something and end up doing it. Yeah, yeah, both are, both are possible. So our man John Rawls gives a really nice definition of promises, and he says that promises must fulfill the following convention. See if you agree. He says, in the case of promising, the basic rule governing the use of the words is, quote, I promise to do X. Unquote. It reads roughly as follows. If one says the words, I promise to do X in the appropriate circumstances, one is to do X unless certain excusing conditions obtain. Wow. So, so that's, that's all from rules. I mean, that's such a get out. It's like it, it, yeah. the appropriate circumstances uh, unless certain excusing conditions obtain. He also says, though, that a promise is binding if and only if one is conscious, rational, knows what promises they are making, knows the meaning of the words involved in the promise. It also must be a free promise. It must be done without coercion. Coercion, I think, is a key point, and we don't really talk about that much, or at least we didn't when we were preparing yeah. it. But it's it's interesting, because coercion definitely changes the flavor of yes. entering into a promise, right? I, I suppose as well, again, this is this will, we'll come back to this when we're discussing what is unreasonable, but a big part of it is, what is coercion, mm. right? Because I can, see, I can see lots of examples where... Or I, I certainly in, in my own life, I think you probably relate to this. Times that maybe now with more maturity and thought, I realize that my, you know, I should be very careful making promises. But times where you may have promised something to someone because in an instant you felt bad and you were trying to make them feel better, not because you thought it was a reasonable thing to promise. Mm. I just thought of something that's so relevant to us that I can't believe we didn't think about when we were prepping this. What about when you go into a meeting with a VC? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and, um, and like on one level, you're promising them a lot of things. Yeah. And, and sorry, to clarify, this does not mean that we just lie to investors. But I will say for anyone who hasn't run a startup or raised money for a startup, there's this weird meta game mm. where like everyone knows that your targets are targets they're not promises mm-hmm. and we've actually had this experience where like we've gone in certainly in the very very early days and said very honestly like this is the revenue that we want to achieve in this country yeah uh, and and been told like ah, oh, that's not ambitious enough right yeah uh, and we were talking like the revenue that we were actually trying to make in two or three years. Yeah, yeah, which and, was really just like triple and then triple again what we've been doing. So yeah, it's like, this is very, you know, it's actually yeah. stuff that we ultimately went on to achieve. Yeah, so. it's, it's like there's this meta game where like everyone knows that you have to say really inflated numbers mm. uh, to, to like sound ambitious and stuff. But then the people hearing it know to like not take those seriously and then par it down. So then if you actually are serious and, and just say the actual amounts, the actual targets that you actually want to achieve, hey, it's a big meta game, right? It's, it's kind of like nth level reasoning where it's like you know first level is like i know this and second level is like i know that they know this and then third level is like i know that they know that i know (laughs) you're gonna have to do like you know whatever to some deeper level and to be fair i mean that's not relevant necessarily to the point of coercion but i guess the relevance there is that there is a kind of culture which uh, pertains which kind of causes you to make inflated promises exactly like is the norm to be exaggerative or hyperbolic for example um anyway uh, again, above example that I was talking about where, uh, referring again to the rules thing, it would therefore not constitute a promise under these standards if oh, you were coerced. Sorry. Another key definition is the word unreasonable. This certainly relates to the stuff we were saying just now about coercion and you mm. know, certain excusing conditions and uh, appropriate circumstances. <laughs> Thank you, rules. Yeah. <laughs> so unreasonable when talking about promises is generally asking someone for something that would either be impossible for them to do or something that the promiser would rather not do for moral reasons or that maybe would be really detrimental for the promiser to do. That's being a bit colloquial about it. I guess formally we could sort of say a promise is unreasonable if it's impossible or if it is itself immoral or create some kind of conflict of duties. Exactly. Another one I really want to get onto is, and we'll discuss later, is what happens if you make a promise to do something and later realize that actually you didn't like you do not have aside from maybe that promise which maybe you 
think you shouldn't have made, uh, or perhaps feel coerced into, or you know, think think it was unreasonable. What if you don't feel like you have any other natural duty? I'm interested in the relationship, and we'll discuss this a bit because I, I remember it in the notes. The relationship between the duty of promises and your natural or other duties that you form to people. So we'll come to those examples. The point is there will be responses ranging from you absolutely must do everything in your power to fulfill a promise no matter what, all the way down to promises really don't matter. And there's lots in between. And we'll kind of discuss the sorts of moral reasonings that lead to those different outcomes when it comes to fulfilling promises and their importance. Cool. So first up, we have our good, good friend, Immanuel Kant. And he very much falls into the former category of you absolutely must do everything in your power to fulfill a promise that you have made. Mm. So Kant famously hard on following rules. Exactly. Kant, as you remember, is... uh, I can't. (laughs) <laughs> he's uh he's the big name in, in deontology i guess kind of rules-based rules-based morality. morality um the morality of an action is sort of contained within the action itself he has his categorical imperative and he tries to demonstrate through rationality that it is morally required to keep promises so can't as you probably know if you've listened to the show he frames morality in a very specific way which is to say if a behavior when universalized which means everyone in the world does it leads to a logical contradiction it is your duty to avoid it so basically, he tries to create a system of rules that lead to no logical contradictions. And that's kind of what he means when he says something is universalizable, right? Yeah, it would make sense if everyone did it. Uh, and clearly, sticking to promises is a rule that is universalizable. I don't really understand how he deals with, for example, the extreme of what happens if I promise to do something that's literally not possible. Like, yeah. it, it, it's a duty I'm bound to fail at. Yeah, and what about if your promise is, I don't know, to kill someone? Or, or, yeah, or which, which contradicts another universalizable But Kant certainly considers that breaking promises is impossible, or, or it's a contradictory behavior. If everyone broke promises, promises would stop meaning anything to people, and so it wouldn't make sense to make them. And therefore, breaking a promise to Kim is nonsensical. And immoral. And immoral, yeah. So... A real life example. So let's talk through a couple of these. Oh yeah, we had a couple actually that we kind of wanted to come back to throughout the show to kind of because, as we say, everyday philosophy podcast. We kind of wanted to ground it into potentially real life examples that we can yeah. use as to sort of hang the frameworks on. Yep. So the first one. Wow, this one. This one is personal. Tig, do you want to? Do you want to? Le- Tig's with us here. He's uh, one of our production team and promotion team. Do you want to lean in and tell us a little bit about this scenario because it sounds personal to you? It's a very heavy topic and it may affect a lot of people's lives personally because dementia is a fairly common illness that affects a lot of people, especially as populations are getting older. And so in my family, I have an aunt whose mother died of dementia and she insisted that her children, if she were to fall to the same fate, well, that they expedite it, that they... (laughs) Very very understated there. (laughs) Take me to Switzerland. (laughs) Yeah, put her out of uh, the misery, or I guess more the confusion. And it is very personal. And not only that, but I've heard similar promises be made and be asked of from Mm. younger people as well. I remember a friend said after he nearly got hit by a car, if I were to get hit by a car, please do promise me that if I'm in a vegetative state or, you know, I'm brain dead, do pull the plug. That's a classic promise. That's a classic one. The yeah, like promise to pull the promise to pull the plug. Wow, I guess part of it this kind of is a bit like the trolley problem, right? Where like a big part of it is just how difficult it is. It's much easier to turn off life support than it is to actively you know, actively yeah. like end the life. It's, it's like they're pushing the fat man in front of the trolley versus yes. pressing the button. Yes. Right. Just really quickly, trolley problem, maybe one should address at some point, but the idea is like a trolley is going to hit three people, you could pull a switch and it'll kill one person, right? Or let, let's say trolley's going to hit 10 people, you can pull a switch and it'll hit one person. You know, most people would say, oh, you should pull the switch, kill the one person. And sometimes they say, okay, you have to, push a fat guy onto the train to stop the train <laughs> instead of pulling a switch. And, or, or you could say, like, there's someone guarding the switch and you have to kill them. They're still kind of like, okay, you're only going to kill two people instead of ten. But suddenly the act of having to kill someone in order to do it, yeah. Yeah, um, it feels much more active than the sort of passive or semi-passive saving of lives. Or yeah. it's harder to frame it as saving. There's, there's a yeah. lot of permutations of the trolley problem that kind of tries to drive it. Like, it tries to make you uncomfortable, basically. Yeah. It sort of plays with your intuition. Yes. Another real-life example. I shan't ask Tiger if this actually happened, but an exam cheating scenario. What happens if you promise to help someone pass an exam, but you realize their performance is so low? Let's say their name is Jacob Wedderburn Day. <laughs> they have no reasonable hope of, of no passing exam. No hope at all. Uh, just in life in general. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you're trying to help them pass this exam just to kind of cope with the rest of it. And you realize the only way is if they cheat. Do you help them cheat? Well, this must be, to be fair, this must be very relatable to any parents out there who homeschooled kids through COVID who must have had so many opportunities where exams were delivered online to 
Oh, man. Give that kids. Oh, little. yeah. I saw a crazy study. I think it was in India where like the improvement in exam results, uh, <laughs> you know, was just astonishing when kids were taking them at home, like, quote unquote, supervised by like a webcam. But anyway, Kant on these. Traditionally, I think it, it's, it's understood that he would say a promise is a perfect duty. So even though murder and cheating are bad, you'd still have to fulfill those commitments if you make them as promises. Yeah, which is funny, right? That sounds it's a strong position to take, isn't it? It's a very strong position. I think. I think the examples both kind of obviously throw up quite, quite sort of powerful contradictions. In the case of death, it is as you say. It's literally like you've got the choice between honouring a promise or killing someone, killing someone to honour the promise or breaking that promise. And mm. yeah, it's it's heavy. And it's interesting that Kant's perspective would basically be the promise kind of comes first. Mm. It's a perfect duty. Are we a hundred percent on that? That Kant would Are say we? that you yeah. have to do something because I'm fairly sure Kant's is normally used as the argument where it's like well you couldn't kill someone and utilitarianism is used as like you can kill them because it means fewer people will die overall yeah I think one of the things Kant has said is that not killing someone is also a perfect duty and it's not possible for perfect duties to collide that it's a conflict is basically also nonsensical which is a very unhelpful answer yeah, so, what's, what's, so what's the outcome there so if you say to Kant oh I've promised to kill someone what do I do mm. he says no you haven't that hasn't happened because promising to do something would be a perfect duty you have to fulfill and killing mm. someone <laughs> is something you cannot do. Very so 1984. This has not Very 1984. <laughs> wow. Interesting. Okay, so, so we've actually resolved that we aren't clear on what he would say there. He would perhaps say that you have somehow failed to understand a universalizable way of for, uh, of making promises. I suppose that's true because because the key thing for him was, as we said, it's universalizable. You're treating people as it well needs to as be, it needs to be means. sensical. It needs yeah. to make sense, and, and it doesn't make sense if perfect duties are colliding. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's one perspective. Up next. <laughs> <laughs> next one, act utility. So, I mean, we've spoken a bunch about consequentialism, utilitarianism. I'll assume if you're listening to this, you are familiar with the overarching idea. An approach to ethics that basically focuses on outcomes. At least that's what determines the morality of them. So more specifically, act utilitarianism. According to this, every act should be assessed just to see what the potential benefits and losses are and whatever leads to the highest net game is what is moral, what is right to do. It's a kind of weighing up. It's a cost-benefit analysis, isn't it? I think the interesting thing, and we'll kind of discuss this comparing it to other things, is that it's a sort of short-term weighing up. Mm. It's it's like, okay, it's purely thinking about the outcomes of this specific action. It's not thinking about norms that it promotes or, you know, similar sort of things. So following this framework... If you make a promise, you must decide again what to do when you're approached with the issue of whether to actually do it. Kind of becomes a bit case by case, right? Yeah. If keeping the promise happens to produce the most net gain, then keep it. Breaking the promise produces the most net gain, break it. Uh, essentially, whether or not you promise to do something, it doesn't hugely matter when discussing the morality of actually doing it beyond what harm breaking it would do in terms of disappointing the other person. Mm. So it just it adds a little more negative because you're going to let someone down but it doesn't actually change the substantive moral significance of of promises or, or what you're you know doing in that regard. Interesting. So, I mean, that perspective would seem to indicate that promises have no particular moral significance. But I think this is where the time horizon element of utilitarianism comes into play. Because a more nuanced view of this, as you said, it's, it's quite short term. And, and that could be short-sighted. Because failing to uphold a promise could ultimately contribute to an impression that you are untrustworthy. And so, even if in the immediate short term it benefits you, it might overall like it, uh, over a longer time yeah. period it might actually hurt I, well, you. and not just hurting you it's not just maximizing for yourself but you yeah, know there, there's the plenty, actually there's plenty of of statistical economic evidence that societies with lower levels of trust actually function less well mm. we have strong legal frameworks in the developed western world but a big part of what makes business so or you know commerce and business here so successful is the fact that we often don't need it mm. because there's a high level of trust Exactly. Exactly. Um, you, you you have institutions you know you can reliably fall back on, and therefore people just honour expected behaviours because mm-hmm. yeah. So if we were to take the the two examples that uh, that Ty gave us, ah, so if we have the two examples of cheating scenario, yeah. what do you think would happen in this circumstance? So the first one is you have a elderly relative who is very unwell. Either it's dementia or or perhaps a vegetative. I suppose to the extent that those where it progresses to the point where they might be relatively similar. Mm-hmm. What are the benefits and losses if we consider that from an act utilitarian perspective? Well, I think it would depend on you yourself right i think different act utilitarians might sort of weigh it up according to different sort of weights that they put on different things i mean first one thing that we said is how personally horrible is the act of ending Mm -hmm. that person's life like yeah for example if you're in switzerland and you'd 
uh, like I joked earlier, but if you're genuinely in Switzerland or can get them to Switzerland and, and it's a more comfortable and, end of life kind yeah, of situation, then then it might be fine. If they are, you know, on life support and the doctor asks you, you're in a position where legally they're like, oh, you have the choice whether we should sustain them. Mm. Like those, those make it relatively easier. If you need to somehow legally commit murder yeah. in order to fulfill that promise, uh, which is both legally risky to you and, you know, I'm, I'm assuming it would probably involve some sort of action that's actually unpleasant, um, very unpleasant on your part. Then actually, it might feel, you know, from an act utilitarian perspective, you'd be like, of course I shouldn't. And actually, one thing that we'll discuss uh, in a kind of thought experiment in a minute about desert islands is that if the person is in a vegetative state or, you know, very far along in dementia, then also you're not even having that issue of having let them down because they're not aware that you've let them down. They're not feeling that negative. And I guess then the, the you weigh up all of those things against the benefit, which is that you are at least preventing them yeah. from further suffering. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and fulfilling a promise. And fulfilling a promise. Yeah, but I guess, like we said, from the act utilitarianism perspective, actually that, that second part doesn't really matter. It's just that... Unless know, it makes benefit. you feel good to some degree, I suppose. Yeah, actually, that's true. It can make you feel good. Uh, the second one, we're talking about cheating on exams. So this was interesting because we were talking about it before. On one hand... And it depends a little bit on your view of the scope of how much you care about people you don't know, because mm -hmm. it can be affecting other people. If, you know, say, for example, it's a normal bell, uh, what was it? It's a normal curve graded. Like a uh, normal graded distribution. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, you could be impacting other people. That's uh, true, because your score literally affects the balance that other people have. Yes. Um, but even, even if not, it could be the case that you're passing qualifies you for a position that could have gone to someone else yeah or you know say for example you're helping someone with their medical exams you're helping someone who's not good enough to, to... Well, like taking a drugs test for someone or... yeah <laughs> <laughs> well no that's different i was actually going to say that's that's a good counter example you know what if if someone needs some inane bureaucratic qualification but they're clearly able to do it um <laughs> and they just don't have time to prepare then maybe it's not a big deal if yeah if you're i mean this depends a little bit on your viewpoint but i know lots of people who work at jobs where it's like they are strictly supposed to be drug tested but you know their their recreational use of drugs is no different to the way that i drink alcohol on a friday night but strictly they would fail that test like i don't think helping them pass that would be an issue mm -hmm. um but some people might to be fair as you say yeah. Yeah. again actually introducing some legal risk for yourself perhaps i don't know but um yeah from an act utilitarian perspective it becomes clear that actually both of those things can be pretty easily not just justified but seen as the right thing to do mm -hmm. um whereas you know can't might struggle accepting for the fact that you might have perfect duties to not in these specific ones you know help people cheat or kill people it depends i suppose with can't how much you you value the sort of act of cheating i mean it's clearly less wrong than murder but i suppose mm. it's a form of lying which yeah. famously he really wasn't a fan of no okay i mentioned that we we're going to use an analogy and this will help actually we'll talk a little bit about this uh thought experiment with the desert island because uh, it's another one like the two that we just discussed that really helps to highlight how from a utilitarian perspective promises can feel kind of arbitrary Right. Mm -hmm. So the basic setup is, say you make a promise to someone on a desert island. Nobody in the, uh, else in the world knows about that promise. Is it just the two of you? It's just the two of us. Mm -hmm. Just the two of us. <laughs> um, Islands it, in the stream. So basically me and Wilson are chilling on a desert island. <laughs> <laughs> a little castaway reference for those who don't get it. Love Wilson! It. <laughs> the little volleyball with the blood hand on him or mud. Anyway, he's cool. So you make a promise to Wilson. And after you leave, Wilson dies. Aww. I mean, Wilson was never alive, but say it was a person who actually died. <laughs> um, the question then is, are you obligated to fulfill that promise? From an act utilitarian standpoint, probably not. It, I mean, the only things to consider is you feeling bad about not doing it. That's the only negative really to consider, right? There's no harm that you're causing by uh, reneging on that promise. The, you know, no one else is aware. The promisee will forever be unaware. Actually, even from a more nuanced midterm perspective, again, except for internal guilt and conflict, you're not even undermining the norm mm. of not fulfilling promises or trustworthiness or fidelity, uh, as, as Rawls would say is important. Didn't mention that in the uh, definition, but he does. Because no one else knows about it. It's literally just you. So what this example does is it strips away all the sort of, yeah, all, all yep. the other sort of elements that could that could kind of yep. conflict and it drives at the point of like, yep. how much does a promise on its own matter? Exactly. And this really, this I think this really highlights the Kantian perspective and also that kind of intuitive feeling that a lot of us have where... You know, I feel like your intuition would be just because that person died, it doesn't relieve you of that moral obligation to uphold the promise, even though utilitarianism or act utilitarianism specifically might say so. You know, if anything, you might feel like you have an even stronger reason to fulfill that promise, right? Yeah. I mean, we say Desert Island, another, you know, another classic, and this is a very real example, is, you know, you're in war and, you know, you're someone's shot and their dying wish to you is, look, go see my mother 
<laughs> and tell them that I or see. <laughs> tell see, her I always hated her. <laughs> <laughs> tell her her cookies sucked. <laughs> but um, no, you you get my point. Like y- you might feel like, look, this is that person's dying wish. I actually have an even stronger obligation. Um, it kind of elevates it rather yeah. than removing it. But then again, coming back to the act of utilitarianism, you could just say that again the key determinant whether you should follow it is the positive and negatives that you're feeling because it only applies to you and the fact that it's a dying wish has just altered your feelings towards it. So you're just really going to feel bad if you don't do it. You know, the only difficulty is going to Idaho to see their family or something. <laughs> Who wants to go to Idaho? Udaho. Um... <laughs> And one, thing, one, one other one that we discussed, and Jake bloody ruined this. I was like, what if their dying wish is, go and scatter my ashes on Mount Everest? And I'm like, it's clearly a pretty unreasonable ass. And right? I was like, that's so cool. I finally got like a... <laughs> yeah, Jake would be like, I have an excuse to go up Everest. I'm like, you're missing the point. Okay, imagine it's somewhere you didn't want to go. Imagine they were like, get onto a really, really expensive mini sub and go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench and disperse my ashes. Also sounds really cool. It does sound quite cool. <laughs> but imagine you couldn't afford it. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, the whole it's, 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 it's a good ana- sorry, it's a good analogy that really helps kind of show that conflict between uh, like what is practical mm. or util- you know, act utilitarianism, you know, whether whether promises on a deeper level, and this is really what it's asking, whether promises form some sort of deeper objective duty that should be maintained in their own right, or whether promises are convenient contracts that, you know, mm. generally you should uphold contracts, but when a contract doesn't make sense, just ignore it. Yeah. Or, is, or isn't convenient, ignore it. I find this really refreshing because I think generally it tends to be the case that whenever we discuss questions, we probably sit more often on the side of utilitarianism, or at least it tends to align quite well with people's practical view of morality. Mm. Uh, it certainly seems more practical in a lot of cases than, than the sort of stricter deontological approaches can do. Yeah. But I think this is a really, promises are a really interesting realm where actually I think most people's natural feeling towards it is slightly more deontological. It is. I mean, you, you have that sense of almost like honour Yes. That you've, you've given your word and, and you want to live up to it. This is something really interesting because I have recently been reading, and we talked about this, I've been reading Treasure Island, mm. right? And the thing that's really interesting there is that it's it's kind of old-timey book, and there's a really strong sense of honor. I, I won't ruin the book uh, for anyone who hasn't read it, although it's bloody old, so spoilers <laughs> It's been, it's been out of copyright for a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but when, when was it written? 1700s? 1800s? Uh, it's Robert Louis Stevenson, is yeah. it? Yeah. When was it around? I don't know. Before mm. the 1900s, anyway. Um, must be 1800s, actually. Uh, wait, when were pirates big? <laughs> Yar. <laughs> Early 2000s, Pirates yeah. of the Caribbean. Yeah. Dean well, they're very big now in Somalia chest. as well. Yo, ho, ho, and a bottle of rum. Yeah, they're big in Somalia. Look at me. I am the captain now. <laughs> there, there was a really strong sense of honor, and there were several times where they were doing things, which I thought, as the kind of concept of honor has diminished over time, uh, you know, the, I mean, in, I also remember I read Dostoevsky, and it's like, mm. you, know, you would be obligated to have a duel to the death. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. someone challenges you by rule of honor, you have to accept the challenge, even if it means you might die, and you disagree with why they're, they're challenging you, because then it would be cowardly to not accept, which I think I feel like is a sense that's diminished over time. A lot of that is this kind of deep, inherent thing. But then this kind of brings us to the, to the next point perhaps it's more about making sure that people follow rules that are good for everyone in the mid to long term it kind of brings us to rule utility so a specific example i remember from that book treasure island is there's a momentary truce and they discuss how can we make peace and i know in the book like they don't take the opportunity to you know they're fighting with a bunch of pirates in an island they don't take the opportunity to kill the leader <laughs> and it, 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 it's just where they have a parlay right they yeah, yeah a white flag yeah. and they're like yeah have a chat talk. and like on the one hand uh, you know, act utilitarianism, like you should take advantage of that situation and kill the leader. On the other hand, you know, and, and they do later have other parlays which are important. You kind of realize if you did that, you would destroy the norm of being able to talk. It'd be which, a major dick move. Yeah, which which brings us to rule utility. Okay, so yeah, there is a utilitarian viewpoint that does appease the desert islander situation. And that says that rather than judging every individual act by its utility, you judge rules by their utility and then adhere to those rules. And that's why you're calling it rule utilitarianism. Uh, by the system, the rule of you should keep your promises is a good one since it fosters trust and is overall beneficial so it almost sounds a little bit Kantian in flavor but Mm. I guess the point is that instead of appealing to some kind of greater logic as to how you form these universalizable rules you're still looking at the consequences the consequences are ultimately what determine which rules are good to follow and I think it's interesting one conception we we talk often about John Stuart Mill it's kind of somewhere in between where like he is a, a utilitarian, uh, hence consequentialist, but he does kind of introduce these these rules and the reasoning is something mm. along the lines of like, look, n- these norms are important, norms of trustworthiness. In that specific example I gave from Treasure Island, the norm of 
following the rules of honor, allowing you know parlays to happen. The really classic one: don't shoot the messenger. It's, mm. a, it's a very it's, it's very literal because actually you know certain fights would be so much worse if there was no way for these people to communicate. So there's an accepted rule amongst all: don't shoot messengers, mm-hmm. uh, even though you could do that to send a message. Nice. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, as we said before. What's kind of nice about this perspective is that it just allows you to extend the time horizon of typical act utilitarianism and, and take a longer term approach yep. of, of how you sort of consider. Yeah, which helps you understand how actually, even if, you know, a specific act doesn't make sense in the short term, uh, in the long term, when you think about abhor- uh, upholding, abhorrent, <laughs> upholding certain norms and rules, actually it can make sense. So we talked about the deathbed example. We talked about dying wishes. But this is a really interesting case where actually, and the point of the Desert Island example and all of that was to sort of highlight where consequentialism can lead to unintuitive consequences or unintuitive decisions. But actually, I've got an example here where that kind of flips on its head. So let's say someone on their deathbed asks you for an impossible promise. We talked about Mount Everest. We can give... I mean, well, we, well, let's let's not take something that's challenging or uncomfortable. Let's take something that's literally impossible. Yeah. So, so for example, maybe the person on the deathbed doesn't realize that their partner is already dead, and they ask you, "Please tell them I'm sorry." Yeah, that's actually that's a really fantastic example. So they say, "Tell them I'm sorry." You know that it's impossible. You can't do it, even if you tried. There's no way unless you went to like a séance or. <laughs> 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 but a consequentialist position would be that making the promise reduces the dying person's anguish, calms their mind, puts them at ease. And actually, promising to do something impossible in this case could be the right thing to do. There's certainly no harms that come about from promising this dying person who's who's about to pass away yep. anyway. But uh, a Kantian or deontological perspective might say that actually promises hold real significance and it wouldn't permit you to do this. Uh, or, you know, or I could even see a rule-based utilitarianism where it's like you're undermining the institution of promises. If you believe that you form a genuine moral obligation to fulfill any promise you swear to, and you know that fulfilling that promise is impossible, then you know it would be immoral to accept that promise, and you must decline, even knowing it would likely cause distress or dismay to this dying person. So this, much like the Desert Islander example that we discussed, goes against most people's intuitive understanding of what would be right and wrong when it comes to making promises. And also, actually, I think, just to, just to point out, it, it really relates to that... Um, to the uh, axe murderer example mm. where Kant says how would you deal with an axe murderer coming to your house asking where your family is and his position that you know you shouldn't lie as another universalizable rule the same that you should uphold promises right mm. um, his you know most people would say obviously you lie to the person uh, you're, you're buying your family time you're, you're helping through this person of course and you know his takeaway is you can't lie and from a practical perspective you can be misleading but you can't lie so in this case you know perhaps the, the Kantian thing to do would be to kind of sidestep the promise, um, you know, they mention, oh, tell this person I love them and say, oh, uh, I'm sure they love you too, rather than saying, <laughs> <laughs> rather than saying, you know, I promise I will tell them. Yeah, it's a, it's interesting because you can imagine if you if you were to take it sort of to the extreme and you say, I'm sorry, they're, they're dead already. Like, yeah. <laughs> that seems like a really unkind thing to do. And I think, yeah. I think most people would agree that's that would be the wrong approach. But it is interesting how different people feel about this. I remember chatting about this specific example with my parents when we were preparing for this episode. And my dad was very much on the point of view of like, what's the harm? Like you, you promise them, put them at ease. It doesn't yeah. at that point matter. Yeah. Uh, whereas my mom, I think possibly uh, felt more of a sense of honor. I was like, yeah. oh, you know, I feel uncomfortable about the idea of making making a Maybe, prom- making yeah. a, such an explicit promise. And I think then sat more yeah. in the kind of frame of like, yeah, sidestep it, avoid well, it. Well, like, let's, let's be more specific. What if we amend this a little bit? Mm-hmm. I'll say, would we amend this a little bit to actually make the sidestepping even more feasible? Let's say they're, again, we keep coming to this example, but let's say they're suffering severely from dementia and they, you know, they ask you this in a moment of uncharacteristic clarity. And that could also explain why they might think that their partner is alive, mm-hmm. right? So let's say that's the case and it actually makes it easier to sidestep mm-hmm. the request. Does that then change your position at all? Because now, from a consequentialist perspective, it's actually easy to sidestep it and they'll forget in a minute or whatever. So maybe it's not making that big a difference to their... Um, anguish you know maybe maybe you're missing that kind of five second like them feeling really happy before they kind of mm. I, I'm not really familiar enough with how oh my god look at the weather <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah is that uh, a well, squirrel <laughs> uh, well, I, you know I don't know you could cue something nice to them or whatever but I, I think you take my point like does that change it significantly if it wouldn't upset them they might forget then you're kind of really playing with the just the duty element of it yeah it's a lot like the desert island yeah. one right what would you do there what would I do? Yeah. I, I still haven't quite figured out how I feel about this. I can see the practical side, and I think probably that's what I'd end up doing. I'd, I'd sort of Even go in the them. dementia example where sidestepping it, you know, doesn't much matter because they'll forget that they asked you in a minute. Oh, I see. You're saying, yeah, it actually takes the pressure off a little bit. Yeah. Um, 
I would do Sidestepping crab- probably is the easiest move, isn't so it? So I actually and would it feels probably, the most morally I consistent. probably would still make that promise. Would you? Yeah. Because just to make them just to make them happy, even if it's for a few seconds, to me, for the sake of you know some words, why, mm. why wouldn't you? Like, I think this we'll, we'll talk about this later. But for me, I realize when I think about promises, like some people. I remember I was reading the notes that um, we had kind of prepared and that Martha had sent through as well from from roles and similar people. Uh, and there was this distinction of like promises as separate duties to general moral obligations, because mm. often moral obligations you form without consent, like. That's, yeah, that, 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 I mean, it's it's the problem of political philosophy. Like, how do we form obligations to each other without just agreeing to them? And promises is the unique time when it's literally like, do we agree to this? Yes, we agree yeah, to it's, this. It's very explicit, yeah. isn't it? That's the difference. Um, but I don't think that you can just form any arbitrary obligation to do something. It, in my sense, is that a true promise is more about reinforcing an existing duty, is saying this thing that I'm going to do, like, I'm really, really going to do it. Mm-hmm. it I, I don't feel like it's something that, you can part of what makes a promise unreasonable is asking someone or, or making a promise that you realize that you kind of don't have a duty to uphold anyway mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. so i don't know asking a company to promise to pay their taxes is very <laughs> different to asking a company to promise to i don't know i don't know why i said company a person to pay their taxes is very different to asking a person to like sorry let me let me put it like this someone says you know, to us, promise to run your business ethically and pay living wage, right? Mm-hmm. Be like, actually, that's something I have a duty to do anyway, and I'll strengthen that duty by saying I promise to do it. But if someone says to me, promise that you'll hire the specific person, you know, if I, I don't have a duty to hire a specific person, and if I realize that that person's, like, not quite right, then I'm absolutely not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, I actually have a stronger duty not to do it, a stronger duty to myself and to doing what's best for the company to not do that. Mm-hmm. So is the right thing to do in that circumstance not to form the promise at all? In the case of the dementia person, no. I think I, I think it could reasonably be understood that like you have a duty to make this person feel as good as possible during their dying moments, yeah. And you don't have a duty to uphold ridiculous, unreasonable promises. Mm-hmm. So you should make the promise that makes them feel good, even if it's for a fleeting few seconds because they have severe dementia. Is the kind of reasoning that I see because promises are about strengthening existing duties. To, in my mind, when I think about it, this is this is not backed by any sort of like. <laughs> no, that's the point. It's I right. mean, part of it is to think for yourself, right? This exactly. is this is my feeling on on promises. No, I like that. I think that's I think that's fair. And if you're wondering, by the way, is philosophy just an exercise in finding extreme and unlikely scenarios to break? <laughs> and, uh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. To, yeah. To break. To break. Basically, I think the interesting thing about frameworks is that I, I kind of admire. I, I don't admire. Mm, I find it so interesting that someone like Kant can be like, I have found the correct way. Because to me, it's he so takes obvious. Such a strong position, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. To me, it's so clear that there is no correct framework. The point of different frameworks is that there isn't a clear answer, mm. and you need to kind of. It's an art, not a science, of like when to apply which framework and to what severity. Yeah, uh, different I, problems require different frameworks. I admire his attempt at consistency because I think yeah. he he takes a very strong position, and that's yeah, it's cool, it's um, interesting. So interesting. I, I, I spoke a lot about um, whether I think promises are inherently moral. Let's just quickly go back to Rawls on his idea of contracts and deontology, and then we'll move on to talking about Hobbes, Jake. You gave us that Rawls definition earlier. Can you tell us a little bit about what he thinks about promises from a, from a kind of objective moral perspective? Yeah, I, and Rawls is interesting because I think possibly somewhat like yourself, he doesn't think that promises are moral in and of themselves. Rather for him, it's the principle of fidelity that gives a promise its moral status. So the principle is the idea that one must fulfill promises and morality comes from whether or not someone fulfills the principle of fidelity rather than the breaking and keeping of promises themselves. Yep. And obviously Rawls is not as strict on rules as say um, someone like Kant is. So I think he could kind of align with like, look, when this, when that duty clashes with another duty, it, it, you know, it's not about absolutism. It's mm-hmm. actually then a bit about weighing up. Yeah, yeah. I think he'd he'd find himself in the position where you are sort of balancing stuff out, right, rather mm-hmm. than saying. Yep. So you have the principle of fidelity, which is important. But you know, if if the principle of fidelity is applying to something that's not in itself morally important, and you're balancing that against something that you do consider to be morally important, mm. then actually the answer can depend a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose there's some license to interpretation. I mean, Rawls himself carved out a lot of exceptions in the definition that he gave. Where it was exactly. Like, exactly. Appropriate. Excusable. Yeah. And you no have coercion. To meet these conditions. Yeah. Exactly. And it's like, what counts as coercion? Like, you know, if you're say, okay, say for example here. Maybe by his reasoning, we're talking about this uh, person with severe wish. dementia making this dying wish to you. You know, maybe that's just coercion. As yeah, in maybe, maybe that's just emotional coercion. That's like literally just the caveated thing that he said this doesn't count. Maybe there's a flavor of that. Maybe your aunt or whoever lies on their deathbed and they're like, yeah. Anthony, promise me that you'll hire my boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> someone, if someone says something like that, of course I'm going to say yes. It doesn't mean I'm going to do it. I have a stronger obligation to run a fair company, for yeah. example. And, and as you said, to make them feel better. Uh, yeah. There's a sort of 
yep. faith to and in kindness, right? Exactly, and they've effectively coerced me. But go on, sorry. So I, interesting, that's that's kind of Rawls' rules is sort of take on it. Another one that we said we'd talk about that I think is worth really getting into is uh, Mr. Thomas Hobbes. Yeah. Um, We've not really um, brought him up yet. He's, he's a very famous uh, political philosopher, a, a lot of social contract theory. Effectively, like I mentioned earlier, as a classic political philosopher, he, his question is, how do we form obligations to one another without explicitly consenting to them? Exactly, exactly. So Hobbes, uh, he, he had this idea basically that the ultimate goal for humanity was to progress from our natural state, which he describes as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, in short. That's a quote from Hobbes yeah, I, to I think, civilization. I think that's hopefully quite a recognizable quote. It's one of the... It's, I'd say it's probably one of the most famous quotes in existence. Yeah. He basically says that people start off as kind of borderline sort of animals. We're running around, we're yeah. killing each other, we're only looking out for ourselves. And the kind of goal, if you will, is to progress to a state of civilization. You know, I actually... I find really interesting. We'll still talk through his theory because it's it's immensely interesting and useful. But I remember I read a great book called The Origins of Political Order by Francis Fukuyama. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also listened to a podcast about, I think it was Rousseau. Nice. Um, Look at you doing your research. <laughs> uh, you, you do remember that I studied political philosophy at Oxford, right? <laughs> but um, no, it, it's interesting because I think one thing that they both point out is that actually Hobbes's conception of solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, short as the natural state of humans like actually anthropologically is just not correct right like uh, so Rousseau draws more and this is also a little bit Yuval Harari mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Yuval Noah Harari the, the kind oh, of I love that sapiens, guy. sapiens. Yeah. Um, where this is it's actually no 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 like the state of nature for humans is like simple close-knit tribes mm-hmm. like actually if you look at the like I said the anthropological history of humans it's tribal it's not solitary in a jungle it's always community-based yeah, um, we weren't like individually running around with spears, like no, no, each no. Other. We, we, we're naturally wired for cooperation, which is something we'll talk about in a minute. But mm. I just thought that that was an interesting point to kind of interject, like, hey, you know, this is his point of view, but maybe it's not right. Yeah, well, I think that's fair because he does take that as kind of axiomatic, and then he builds these natural laws on yeah. top of that sort of base. Uh, so Hobbes believed that all men had an innate desire for their own safety, and all of his laws kind of stem from from the ones before. He so, is the the prototypical ultra libertarian right wing guy. <laughs> <laughs> although, although actually, I say that that's his, his premise then leads to some pretty liberal views. Yeah, spe- yeah specifically yeah, yeah. for his time. So his first law is that everyone has the right and the duty to do whatever it is that they think will preserve their own. Life. Okay, maybe he is super libertarian. That, that sounds very libertarian. You take it like that, right? Uh, the second law is that people will, in the interest of peace, forfeit some of their rights to act upon others so long as they are willing to do the same. I guess there's yep. a kind of tit for tat there. Yeah. Uh, and from this, the laws keep building on each other, progressing from a sort of free for all. Uh, uh, which Hobbes, by the way, calls bellum omnium contra omnes, meaning the war of all against all, to something resembling much more like we recognize as modern civilization. So these are the kind of natural laws, the natural obligations we have to one another. Mm-hmm. So he was in the of the opinion that in a naturalistic state, mutual promises and agreements are, are void. Words don't compare to the desire of men to take what they can and survive. Essentially, unless there is a body with the power and the will to enforce the agreement between the two parties, then a promise practically hasn't been made really he, he's thinking of promises as very contractual as mm. opposed to some sort of moral tool and again remember that Hobbes is a political philosopher you know all of his kind of conception of obligations to each other is more uh, about political uh, interaction and, and forming a civilization less about like what's objectively right what's objectively wrong so it's, essentially it's good context yeah his sort of moral ideas yeah these are his views regarding mutual promises what he called deals and contracts uh, Hobbes' answer to the Desert Islander is that you never even made a promise in the first place. But what about promises that are one way, not in exchange for anything? Yeah, Hobbes describes something given that isn't dependent on the other person giving back as free gifts, uh, which I guess is actually a fairly simple term for him. Because <laughs> <laughs> he does tend to complicate things with terminology. So Hobbes claims that when one gives a free gift, you forfeit the right to it. You, you've, you've given it, the other person has it. Like, there, there's, yeah. No, yeah, there's no necessary sort of like promise exchange going on. That kind of makes sense. If you give someone a gift, you don't own it anymore. Uh, yeah, even if you didn't get anything for it. Yep. However, and again, I said he does think of promises like contracts. Unlike with mutual promises and contracts, making a promise of a free gift doesn't constitute a moral obligation. You know, you're not morally obliged to give gifts. That is to say, if you and someone else promise to give each other something in exchange, you are obligated to keep your promises because you are following natural laws that uh, like mean that you're giving something up in exchange for something, right? Mm-hmm. That's what forms the duty in his mind. It's political. But if you promise to do something for someone for free, you're under no obligation. So let's let's think about his state of nature, right? Mm-hmm. You're in the in the wild. Uh, I don't know why. When you think of humans in the wild, you think of the jungle, right? It's actually very few, very, yeah, very few humans live in the jungle. You're in the forests of Europe, and you have a patch that's your own. Nice. And you have a neighbor who has a patch, and you're both defending your patches. Nice. You know, it, he's saying 
it makes sense to say to each other, we won't invade each other's patches. And that's a duty that you do have to uphold. Mm -hmm. But if you say to your neighbor, I won't invade your patch, and the other guy says, cool, <laughs> and doesn't reciprocate, then then you do not have an obligation to maintain that promise, is, yeah. is, is his point, to put it into like political, clear, concrete terms. Interesting. If we were to apply that to the two examples we were, we were talking through, so you've got the dementia death example and you've got the exam cheating example, yep. what would Hobbes' answer to those be? Again, um, it sounds like they would be considered free gifts or mm -hmm. effectively no one can, can, can enforce it and it's not reciprocal, so it's not forming a duty. Is it necessary? So when you say enforcing it, is it necessary that there's a third party uh, to, to, to sort of enforce a contract? Not well, no, in Hobbes' I mean, conception, right? when but you, there are stricter contracts. Even, even, even in Hobbes' conception, you remember the example I gave with two people, the mm -hmm. people enforcing it or the repercussions is each other. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that you're being held to account in some way. So I guess, yeah, I guess his thing is like the desert island, like the dementia person. Well, if, if someone you can't dies, be held they to can't account. enforce it, right? Exactly. Yeah. They can't be, you can't be held to account. Um, but what about the choice to help someone cheat? Because they, presumably no one's dying, they could, there's there's some sort of reciprocity there. Oh, I, I don't know what Hobbes would say about that. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry, mate. And maybe that's outside of the realm of the political, which is where he focuses. To be fair, I was asking you because I didn't know the answer myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, guys, we, we don't tell you what to think. <laughs> it's all about how to think. You tell us if you know the answer. Uh, right in. Get in touch. Okay. Okay. Another concept, again, I want to just relate this to what we were saying about the conception that maybe humans are inherently social creatures mm -hmm. uh, is morality is cooperation, uh, which really, it, it, it's so funny, you know, as people spend a lot of time talking or thinking about philosophy and you kind of think about it almost the, as this sort of like platonic ideal. It exists in the ether as like mm. an objectively perfect thing uh, to then hear, like I said, in, in the specific case of Francis Fukuyama, talking about the history of humanity and the formation of, of politics, to talk about it more anthropologically and biological, where it's like, mm. yeah, it's just this thing they seem to feel. <laughs> it's, and, I, and I love this. I absolutely love this theory. So I've only came across Morality's Corporation in the last couple of weeks, thanks to Tyke, who came across it in his research. And <laughs> those who didn't see, he just waved. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, mate, I don't know if you know how podcasts work. How <laughs> do they work? <laughs> <laughs> it's a uh, star emoji, wave star emoji. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I love this idea of morality's cooperation, and to shorten it, we might call it MAC throughout the episode MAC. But morality's cooperation is a theory, as Ant said, it's closer to anthropology and evolutionary biology than most moral frameworks, and it says that what we call morality is a set of behaviours that have evolved in humans to enable cooperation and conflict resolution. This theory is made up of seven domains of morality. We'll explain those really quickly. The advantage of this framework over more traditional philosophical explorations of morality is that it's a descriptive framework rather than a prescriptive one, yep. which means it simply states what is considered moral and why rather than telling people what they should or should Exactly. Do. So this is, like I was saying, it's more like a scientist has studied what people seem to feel moral rather than that kind of, you know, moral philosopher, Kantian, platonic sort of, like searching for a platonic ideal and just and using that to determine what should be it's, mm -hmm. it's it's more like if you got a bunch of scientists to study some chimps like how do they seem how, like what seem to be the rules they seem to follow yeah. so like any scientific theory it makes predictions about the world that so far have been pretty well supported yeah uh, well any scientific theory that's upheld whilst we identify seven drives we seem to feel no specific one is named as actually more important or better than the others and that can actually explain why different societies for example can come to have differing views on what constitutes moral behavior mm. um, I, I actually also think one thing that we didn't look into and this is we should maybe do an episode on the kind of meta meta morale meta morality like why do we feel morality uh, there's a great book called The Righteous Mind mm -hmm. uh, and they basically say that you know left left wing and right wing people are liberal and conservative people struggle to see eye to eye because you know there's like similarly a, a range of ways that people feel morality mm. and left wing people tend to only feel one which is like based on fairness mm. and right wing people tend to feel like a spectrum which includes like tradition uh, yeah, and property yeah, yeah individualism etc uh, we'll talk about that in a future episode but it, it kind of relates to this like the, the kind of study of, of morality as a science less as a philosophy. And I, I love that as a conception, I think, because we, uh, in addition to philosophy, uh, well, me especially, studied a lot of like economics, game theory, and I think it, it really builds quite nicely on yeah. those frameworks. And oh, yeah, I mean, you can describe each of these. So we'll go through some of them, but like it, yeah. it, it basically describes in a way that you could totally make. It's like, oh, this is a game theoretic model that optimizes exactly. behavior. Exactly. This will test my memory, but the seven things, if I, if I recall correctly, because they're 
got down in the notes are we have family oh tigers just brought them up that's very kind of you we have family we have group sort of uh like what do they call that one cooperation group loyalty group loyalty thank you mate. Right. so fat family would be like literally you have a commitment to people you share dna with yep group loyalty is perhaps extending that beyond to like the tribe yep. or your today your company your organization your group of friends anything that you identify with you yep. know your it football could, team it, it, could, <laughs> it, could be, it could be it could be your football team it could be your hometown it could be your race it, yep. like people feel yeah that. true it could be your nationality and especially in the context of you know hey i live in london i'm not english you know, I might have a connection to people that I share a background with. Yeah, 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 exactly. You have reciprocity, and that's the principle of, like, exchange. This is, I, this is probably the strongest one, fair, I, I, certainly in Western ideals. Fairness, mm -hmm. effectively. Carry on. Mm -hmm. Next, you have hawkish behavior. That's what they call it. And that means bravery, strength of character. It's like morality in sort of terms of, like, yeah, being, being brave, basically courage. And then you have the almost the sort of opposite of that, which is called dovish behavior, and that's about humility and about deference and respect. Mm. And you can see both of those in display. You can see sometimes it's moral to sort of defer to, to people and sometimes it's moral to stand up for things. Then you have division. You have dividing things fairly, which is the concept of, yeah, like Sharing. fair exchange, uh, distribution. Uh, mm. Think about distribution of wealth, for yeah. example. To in be fair, I, I said reciprocity is like fairness. Actually, that's not... Reciprocity is like exchange. Yeah. Division is splitting. Both kind of feel like like ways of describing fairness and then the last one is property yeah. which is hard for ownership. most millennial listeners to relate to <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah that's that sense of like ownership and i think people that's what an interesting one because across different societies when they've studied this anthropologically different societies feel each of the different seven domains to, to different degrees but um generally across the world these seven things all exist in there and they're, right. they're common so what's what, what about mutualism sorry we, we we called it kind of group uh, morality, but you, you can also call it mutualism, so mm -hmm. things we have in common. Coming back to the talk about promises uh, and the discussion around breaking promises, mutualism or group loyalty and exchange are probably the two domains that are most relevant to this. Mm -hmm. So mutualism is the tenet from which we get concepts like friendship, group loyalty, conformity. Humans often stand to gain more from joint endeavours than they can alone. Often, always. Humans yeah. are social creatures. That's that's our advantage. Our advantages over other animals, screw you lions, what are you doing, um, <laughs> are, are our obviously superior intelligence, but also our ability to cooperate. Exactly, exactly. A yeah. pack of humans could hunt larger prey, yeah. providing more meat per person than any could hunt yeah. themselves. To, to, to really highlight the kind of importance of social interaction and working together, uh, I always think one thing that's really crazy to think is, think about hu how humans lived 50,000 years ago, right? Evolution works on a multi-million year mm -hmm. uh, scale right like genetically someone 50,000 years ago is basically the same as now and yet you wouldn't you know they, they were as intelligent as we were it's actually the socializing of you know education etc cetera, etc cetera, that makes us distinctly different from them mm. uh, like biologically there's not much different yeah they had the same potential right yeah um, which is why I think to really highlight that kind of mutualism and group endeavor is important an important glue to hold these groups together is trust Deceptive practices such as lying betrayal or breaking promises, crucially, would erode that coalition since it can only function when every individual trusts that all other individuals will collaborate. Yeah, so, so both implicitly and explicitly. Explicitly being promises, implicitly being, I suppose, Im implied promises. <laughs> yeah, duties, things that arise, yeah, uh, yeah uh, fairness. And, um, and I think that's where morality as cooperation is, is quite powerful because it predicts a result that I think we do feel intuitively, which is that promises do hold a special kind of importance because our, our, our sense of group cohesion kind of derives from that. Yep. Uh, and I guess, secondly, exchange, you know, you mentioned that exchange and mutualism are the two that matter. Exchange is the tenet from which we get concepts like reciprocity, trust, and, you know, revenge, eye mm. for an eye. <laughs> um, but outside of an exist already existing coalition, humans may still benefit from working together. And it's that's why exchange is important, especially when we do want to cooperate, but not by working together simultaneously, but by providing favors one at a time. You know, I'll do this and in future. Like This is one thing I think that hasn't been mentioned with promises. When I make a promise to you, part of the assumption of that is that you will be in my debt. There's mm. no such thing as a free lunch, right? And so say, for example... You have one person who's very willing to make promises and one person who's reluctant to make promises. You know, the person who's making a lot of promises may adjust their behavior to make fewer promises to match the person who's making so little. So, morality's cooperation provides a solid evolutionary explanation for why we consider the practice of keeping promises generally to be good 
and breaking promises generally to be bad. But it also allows for a lot more flexibility than the frameworks of Hobbes, Rules, and Kant that we discussed yeah. before. Well, remember, though, those are prescriptive rather than descriptive frameworks. Exactly. So actually, the, the two can totally coexist. Mm -hmm. they, their frameworks might just more focus on which of the seven are actually important and why. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Though Mac, like the others, would support keeping promises because otherwise there would be little trust between people, uh, and that would be a detriment to their lives, it is not an absolute. As there are seven domains of morality, according to Mac, and they can come into conflict, it's easy to piece together a scenario where one could intuitively say that upholding a promise is not the right course of action by stacking the other facets against it. Yeah. Actually, I have a really good example of this, mm -hmm. specifically of Mac. So you remember that one of the tenets was uh, family, mm -hmm. right? Um, there is a famous... I want to say judge. He was some sort of positive public figure in Boston. I can't remember when. I can't give you the names. Sorry, I should have looked it up ahead of time. Um, <laughs> he was um, this judge or detective or something. I don't know. And his brother was very high up in organized crime mm. and charged with doing something about it. He said, you can't ask me to do that to a member of my family. I abstain from being involved in this. Mm. Um, another great example, General Lee. Is it Lee? Oh, is that from the American Civil from War? From the American Civil War. Actually loyal to the North, but from the South, and despite actually being politically aligned or ideologically aligned with the North, felt that he couldn't fight his fellow countrymen, mm. both mutualism and to some extent family there. Yeah, yeah, there's so many interesting cases where you can you can stack the principles against each other, or rather, the, the cases where things happen and you realize that these are the principles that are in conflict. Yeah, and actually, I mean, effectively, you can kind of think, like, imagine you're making an RPG character, <laughs> uh, and you're, you're sorting out, you're, you're putting points in your morality tree. I think different people, both for reasons of nature and nurture, probably more nurture than nature, to be fair. Although, I guess, if you're a sociopath, then, you know, you, you, <laughs> you might not value family or mutualism very much. Yeah. So, I guess a little bit of both. You kind of just have your own strength of personal drive in these seven things, and that affects... How, that's why we have different moral feelings on difficult questions, right? It's yeah. like, oh, I, I just have a stronger uh, family drive than you do. Some people um, naturally will, right? Yeah, I mean, I, to clarify, I don't. Tino. Screw you. <laughs> <laughs> to uh, be fair, having seen you with your family, I know. I know that's uh, that's totally true. <laughs> no, that's I was not, wondering where you're going with that. Not I true, love my not family. Not true at all. I think we both yeah. have that. We both have a strong sense of family. I, yeah, it would I think, be, it'd be really horrible yeah. if that came into some This is, I mean, this is a classic one. You know, everyone is like, would you help your brother or mm. sister get away with murder? Oh, man. I mean, certainly, certainly most people say you wouldn't report them. Yeah. But some people would even go as far as saying, like, yeah, I'd, I'd help them get rid of the body. Like, that, my, my familial drive is stronger than my drive for justice or yeah. etc. One for another, another anyway, question, I think. Sorry. Okay, yeah, so we've covered a lot of different frameworks for this topic, and this is a good place to sort of wrap them up. So, on the one hand, you had deontological approaches like Kant, and those say you should uphold a promise no matter what, because it's your duty and it's a perfect duty. Uh, then you've got guys like Hobbes that say, with the promise of a free gift, you have no moral obligation to fulfill it at all, even if it's entirely reasonable, but particularly if it's unreasonable, that you can discard it. Those are the extremes, but there's plenty of room in between, and we saw that utilitarianism kind of flipped depending on how you weighed up different factors, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so and also the kind of time horizon over which you were measuring those things. Exactly. So you, you had the sort of act utilitarianism saying you should do whatever is best at the time. What you may have or may not have said you do doesn't really bind you to something. Though the harm you do by disappointing a person or eroding your own reputation is real and should be considered, it must be weighed against the potential harm of whatever you promise to do. So unreasonable promises can be broken depending on how unreasonable they are. It, yeah. it should be broken. Yeah. And then if we think, you know, according to, as you're saying, that kind of descriptive morality is cooperation, keeping your promises is in line with a couple of the domains of morality. So it can be considered immoral to break promise. But those two tenets are actually in competition with so many other tenets. And depending on your cultural background, your personal background, you may feel that those other tenets are more significant. And, and hence, the more moral thing may be to break a promise. So, for example, breaking a promise to a stranger in favor of a family member. Mm. in favor of helping a family member. Conversely, breaking a promise to a family member in the interest of being more fair. So, mm. you know, if someone says, you know, if your uncle says hire your cousin, and yeah. you say no, like, it's unfair. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even and if he's dying. Even if he's dying. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, again, as, as something I mentioned earlier, for, from my conception, when I think about duties that exist perfectly in some objective world, like, I... I see promises more as like a chain for linking existing duties and less or strengthening existing duties. And I see them less as duties in themselves, mm. uh, I, I think. So, you know, case in point with the morality's cooperation, there isn't a specific moral tenet uh, maintain promises. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's it's really just a, a, a an augmentation on the importance of this the group loyalty and reciprocity. So in summary, to answer the question, is it wrong to break an unreasonable promise? The answer can be yes, it can be no, and it can be mostly it depends, and yeah. that's so often the case, isn't it? Yes, and <laughs> I mean, look, I, that that is so often the case with these things. I will go and I, I'm going to put a firm answer. You don't have to maintain an unreasonable promise, is my uh, argument. It's very semantic, though, because it, it totally depends on what counts as unreasonable. And then, you know, I'd go even further. If the question is, do you always have to maintain a promise? My answer is no as well. Mm. Yeah, clearly I have a fair... <laughs> What's your thoughts? <laughs> I think... It's funny because I think my, my, my brain, my sort of, like, my, my logical conception of it is I can see so many cases where we discuss, like, practical examples and, and impractical examples of where, actually, it's reasonable to break things. And yet I know I'd have such an innate sense of discomfort yeah. about Gen- breaking look, something. Don't, don't get me wrong. We're talking about extremes, like, yeah. you know, unreasonable promises. Do you always have to make them? Like... Should you generally maintain promises? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think yeah. we, I think everyone's agreed on that. But are there cases where it's reasonable to break them? Of course. I think yeah. that, that just sort of naturally arises in life, and it's about balancing those duties. And yeah, it's tough. It's tricky. What's your What's your real life examples? Tell us. Send us. Send it in. Yeah. Let us know. Jake and I actually, this is lovely. Every six weeks, Jake and I go and we get haircuts at the same time. We sit, <laughs> we sit next to each other, and it's kind of like a spa kind of thing. They do like a clay mask and everything. It's a Turkish spa. It's uh, they give you even give you a little massage. It's oh, actually it is fantastic. Yeah. So that's where we're off to now. Thank you for listening. Please, if you've made it this far, do leave a review. You know what? If you can't leave a review, send a nice message on Facebook. We really, really appreciate it. And a big thank you to everyone who has left reviews. We really yep. appreciate those. They those do mean a lot. We we read all of them. Thank you also to the guys at Zencaster. Check out that in the show notes. Yep. And thank you to Tig and Martha. Thank you to Tig and Martha. And a big thank you to the Dream Factory in Shoreditch as well yes. for hosting us here. And so, Kane, our editor. And Kane, our editor. God, lots of people to thank. There's I a real, real team behind this now, isn't there? There it is. Have a good day. Bye, guys. Cheers, guys. Bye.